you can be seated. Wait, wait, oh man, that's on a recording, right? Oh, yeah, praise God. Okay, now we're ready. If you guys have your Bibles with you, turn with me to Isaiah chapter 33, God willing, and the creek don't rise, we're going to get chapter 35 tonight. So we're ready for the battle with Shennacherib next next time. But as we take a look, chapter 33 is going to begin with the sixth and final woe. We've been going through the six woes of Isaiah. Uh, If if you remember the six woes, they started way back in chapter 28, verse 1. So that's the first woe was to Ephraim. Chapter 29, verse 1 is the second woe. That is to Jerusalem. The third woe is in 29 verse 15. That's to the leaders of Jerusalem. Chapter 30 verse 1 are toward the rebellious children of Israel. Chapter 31 verse 1 is uh, woe to the people who seek help from others and do not seek help from the Lord. And chapter 33, the final woe is a woe to Assyria. Remember, as we've been going through these woes, keep in mind what's happening. Assyria is a power to be, wiping out everybody they come close to, walking around with the heads of the kings under their arms, proclaiming how every god who was going to deliver these people had failed, and their god was stronger than all other gods. And Shennacherib, the the king at that time, is going around just destroying, building his kingdom. And his kingdom is getting rather huge, and he's on his way to Jerusalem. And all the people in Jerusalem are are looking and seeing this onslaught come and realizing every major power of the world had fallen to them. And now they were coming against Jerusalem. This little place in reality. But here's the point we need to realize. There is only one place on the entire planet that God distinctly calls His. And that's Jerusalem. It's his city. That's his land. He gives a loan, a lease to the children of Israel. But that's his land. It belongs to him. And that is his city. And that's the place where the king will one day rule. Jesus Christ will rule from Jerusalem. Period. He said that all the law and the prophets would be fulfilled. That everything would come to fruition. And so we will see the, the one who was to sit on the throne of David forever, Jesus Christ, put on his crown and take his place as king. So looking forward to, to that occurrence, but right now all around the people, all they can see is this army's coming and we can't beat them. And the, and the people that we, we allied ourselves with, they've already been beaten. 
What are we going to do? What are we going to do? Chapter 33, Isaiah the prophet now begins his woe to Assyria. Listen to what he says. Woe to you who plundered, though you have not been plundered. And you who deal treacherously, though they have not dealt treacherously with you. Here's what happened. Hezekiah was so freaked out about Shennacherib that he had Shennacherib come and he stripped the gold out of the temple. And he gave it to Shennacherib. Here, like a tribute. Just don't destroy us. And Shennacherib said, right on, you got a deal. And then he went and got his army and started coming. And Hezekiah was a fool to trust him and not look to the Lord. But here the Lord saying, hey, woe to you who has not been plundered, but you plunder. Woe to you who is on this binge, because who is it that raises up kings and kingdoms? Was it by the power of Shennacherib and the Assyrian Empire that they came to be who they were? No, God lifts up kings and brings down kingdoms. And we're going to see that when we get through chapters 36 through 38. But this is the prophecy, the prophetic word toward that event. And he's going to begin to talk about the transformation that's going to take place. He's going to use this event as this army's coming down to then look forward into the future and say, hey, one day this is the way we're going to feel in the world. That everything's against us and nothing's going to work out. But listen, that's all going to be transformed. It's all going to be changed. He says, now, when you cease plundering, you'll be plundered. When you make an end of dealing treacherously, treacherously, they will deal treacherously with you. Literally, he's saying the punishment is going to fit the crime. For Shennacherib, when his army is destroyed, he's going to flee back home. He's going to hide in his temple, the temple of his God that is so powerful, and his own people are going to kill him. So he who dealt treacherously, he who plundered, is going to be brought to nothing. Then in verse 2, we have the prayer of the people as they see the army coming. Finally, they've, they've sought help everywhere else, but now here in verse 2 we see their prayer. O Lord, be gracious to us. We have waited for you. Be their arm every morning, our salvation also in the time of trouble. You ever been to the place, this is what happens to them. There's nothing else they can do. Everything's, they've, they've exhausted every man-made thought that they could come up with. Everything they thought that they would be able to work out to make happen, it's been exhausted. And now they're faced with, what, now what are you going to do? You see, it's only when we come to the end of ourselves that we reach out to God so often, isn't it? It's only when we come to the end of us. And so they call out to the Lord, O Lord, be gracious. We have waited for you. Nothing else we can do. What, what are you going to do, Lord? What, what's going to be your work? Here we are calling upon your name, our salvation, in time of trouble. And verse 3 is the response. Now at the noise of the tumult, the people will flee. When you lift yourself up, the nations shall be scattered, and your plunder shall be gathered like the gathering of the caterpillar and the running to and fro the locusts. He shall be upon them. So he's saying, you're going to hear the noise of this great army. They were likened unto locusts going across and just wiping out everything that they crossed. You're going to hear the tumult, all this noise as this army's coming down. But as that army's coming down, be prepared. 
Because you're going to plunder them. You're going to have everything you need from them. Well, he goes on and says in verse 5, this is how that will occur. For the Lord is exalted, for he dwells on high. He has filled Zion with justice and righteousness. Wisdom and knowledge will be the stability of your times and the strength of salvation. The fear of the Lord is his treasure. So as they come, here's the Lord, ready, prepared to stand. And he will make his stand. And as soon as God stands, uh, it's over. That's the end. You realize that there is no great battle. Read Revelation chapter 19. When Jesus returns, he comes back. That battle does not last very long. The, The feast of the great God. Where the birds, all the birds carrying the fowl of the air will feast on the flesh of kings. All these armies that are going to attack the Lord. Yet, Zechariah tells us Jesus Christ is going to wipe them out. Just walking through the midst of them. Revelation says, by the sword that proceeds out of his mouth. The word of God, right? Uh, Exactly how is it that creation occurred? God said, what? Let there be light, and light was. So what do you think God has to do for you to be uncreated? Speak? Yeah. Smile, grin, wink, whatever. It doesn't take much from the Lord to wipe out those armies. It's not going to be a battle. When God stands, it's over. And that's what Isaiah is saying here. As soon as he stands... As soon as the Lord stands up, as soon as he moves forward, he is the strength of our salvation and wisdom and knowledge, the stability of our times. Everything that we will build on the foundation of Jesus Christ is going to stand. Anything we build on any other foundation won't. It's all sinking sand, right? Isn't that what Jesus said? The two men built their house. One built it on the sand. What happened to it? Winds blew, house came down. But the house is built on the rock, it stood. And that rock, 1 Corinthians chapter 10 says, the rock is Jesus Christ. He's the rock. That's what we want to build everything upon. Then he goes in verse 7, he tells what's going to happen. As this judgment befalls the nation of Assyria, it says, surely the valiant ones will cry. Now as... As they're waiting for this moment, they're waiting for these things to occur, the valiant, the brave are going to lose heart. They're going to say, there's nothing we can do. We can't deliver those valiants on the side of Jerusalem. But the valiant on the side of Assyria are going to weep all the more. They're going to weep all the more. Why? Listen to what he does. The ambassadors of peace will weep bitterly. So those who try to go out and say, Shennacherib, don't do this. Don't attack. Don't attack. He's not going to listen to any of them. They're going to weep. It says that the highways will lie waste to destroy all the roads as they went along the way. The traveling man will cease, for he has broken the covenant. He has despised the cities. He regards no man. All of a sudden, when we look at Isaiah, we can begin to see a shadow of somebody else altogether. He goes by another name in the scripture. Some places he's called the Assyrian. But he's looking forward to another man like Shennacherib who will rise on the scene to rule the world. We know him as the Antichrist. 
He says he will break the covenant. We know about that. Daniel chapter 9 says in three and a half years, he's going to break the covenant, the seven-year covenant he made with Israel, right? Makes a covenant for seven years, three and a half, he's going to break it. He's going to break the covenant. He's going to despise the cities. When we look at that, when we're talking about the cities, who, where, where's Shennacherib coming right now? Jerusalem. The city of David. This is his, where his, his focus, his hatred is toward. Where is the hatred of Antichrist going to be? Jerusalem. The, the utter destruction of the nation of Israel. That will be his purpose as we see those times uh, ever draw near. And he regards no man. Now verse 9, he goes on. The earth mourns and languishes. Lebanon is shamed and shriveled. Sh- Sharon is like a wilderness. And Bashan and, and Carmel shake off their fruits. But listen, now, God says, I will rise. Now I will rise, says the Lord. Now I will be exalted. Now I will lift myself up. Three times, God says, now I'll get up. I wonder why he says it three times. I wonder why three times, in essence, he's speaking the same thing. Well, sure, I know this is a, 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 a poetic scripture that Isaiah is writing, but there's a purpose to everything, isn't there? Three times. Maybe once for Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Three times, now I will arise. Now I will lift myself up. Now I will be exalted. And then he says this, listen, this is what life without God is like. You shall conceive chaff and bring forth stubble. Listen, this is what he's saying. Here's what what you have. You are conceiving in your best efforts apart from God. All you're going to do is conceive chaff and bear or give birth to stubble. What value is it? None. What exactly do you get to take with you at the end of this life? Nothing. Jesus said, you know, there was a man, he had big barns and they were full and this great harvest came and he said, I know what I'll do. I'll tear down these barns and I'll build bigger barns and then I'll take my ease of life. And Jesus said, you fool, today your soul is required of you. And your whole life was about the accumulation of stuff that don't matter. This is what the Lord is saying. These guys are out conquering into conquer, doing all these things. But the Lord says, hey, you're conceiving chaff and giving birth to stubble. And the next phrase, the breath, your breath as fire will devour you. Well, what happens? They become their own destruction. Wow, isn't that about the story of most of us? Anytime I look back at my life, at times when uh, I wrought destruction, pain, or misery, it's because I conceived chaff, gave birth to stubble, and the fire of my breath just burned it all up. It's all me. It's my effort. It's my choices. It's, it's, it's me running apart or, or away from what God wants to accomplish in my life, and I become the source of my own destruction. Jesus said it like this. The wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. Yet how often do we, when faced with a choice, to sin or not to sin, do we run headlong down that trail? Knowing 
what it brings. Sometimes we're surprised when we find it there at the end of the road. Jesus also said, be sure your sins will find you out. You think you get away, and it's not just a little thing, and it doesn't matter. But we're conceiving chaff, giving birth to stubble, and the fire of our breath will set our lives on fire. And it just burns away. But the point is, that's life without God. That's life without God. We, on the other hand, we can draw near. We can, we can lean into the Lord, press into Him, and be delivered. Now in verse 12, he says, And the people shall be like the burning of lime, like thorns cut up. They shall be burned up in the fire. It's a short battle when we get to it. Between Assyria and God. It'll be a short battle on that day when Gog and Magog invade Israel. Short battle. It'll be a short battle the day when Antichrist stands with all the armies of the world in the plains of Megiddo. It'll be short battle. God with just the speaking of a word can have the victory. And now he turns his attention in verse 13. He's, he begins to look ahead to the new Zion, to what Israel's going to be like. Yeah, we're having battles and we're having struggles now, but you know that we have a hope in heaven, right? You know that there's a home and this isn't it. And nothing we find here is ever going to satisfy because we weren't made for this place. We are made to live in another place, a place prepared for us by Jesus Christ. And we'll never be satisfied until we find ourselves there. In verse 13, he says, Hear, what, uh, hear you who are afar off what I have done, and you who are near acknowledge my might. Now, that's a nice way of saying, hey, everybody listen up, right? You who are afar, listen. You who are near, hear of my might. The delivery, the deliverance that God's going to do with his people. Verse 14, the sinners in Zion are afraid. Fearfulness has seized the hypocrites, and they ask these questions. Who among us shall dwell with the devouring fire? Who among us shall dwell with everlasting burnings? Scripture lays out for us, your God is an all-consuming fire. Next to that verse, I have written, burn me up. I must decrease, he must Increase. Who can dwell in unapproachable fire? Who can dwell in the presence of God? Well, take a look around, folks. It's you and me. It's us. The righteous. He's going to go on to describe that. But as we look at this, when he says in the scripture, who among us shall dwell with the devouring fire? He's talking about that specific fire is the fire from the altar. The altar that burns the sacrifice. Who can dwell in that? Who among us shall dwell with everlasting burnings? And that word for dwell means who can as an alien, not within their nature, dwell in the presence of God? What does the New Testament tell us about you and I? Now we see through a glass dimly, but then face to face. We will be changed, 1 Corinthians 15 said, in the twinkling of an eye. This corruptible will put on incorruptibility. This mortal will put on immortality. We will be like him. 
What alien, what person apart from a relationship with Jesus Christ can dwell in the all-consuming fire of God? The answer is no one. Nobody. Well, what are God's requirements to dwell in his presence? That's what he gives us next. He gives us those requirements. He who walks righteously first. He who walks righteously. That word for walks means that he walks continually. Not he was doing okay now, but not so good. It's talking about a continual walk. Unvarying conduct. I don't know about you. My conduct is not very unvarying. He who walks righteously and speaks uprightly. Literally, purity of speech. What does it say in the New Testament? Let no unwholesome word proceed out of your mouth. Except such as is necessary for edification, that it may give grace to he who hears. Every word we speak, is that the point behind it? Yeah, it's not for me so much. Does that mean that's not something to aim for? No. What is this? The requirement for being in God's presence. Well, if you don't meet up to this requirement, there must be another way, right? What's the other way? Jesus Christ became sin for us that we might become righteousness. He did it. And so we no longer come to God as aliens, estranged from God, but as adopted sons and daughters. Now what the book of Romans tells us? By which we can cry out, Daddy, to God the Father. By the spirit of adoption, he has made us sons and daughters together with Christ. So we become adopted, not the same nature as God. (laughs) We're adopted. Only Jesus is the same nature. But he brings us into that relationship. So first, he who walks righteous, he who speaks uprightly. Next, he who despises the gain of of oppressions. Literally, he's talking about the freedom of or from the love of money. He who, excuse me, he who despises the gain of oppressions. It's, it's financial gain. This is the focus. Ripping people off to get what's yours so you can have more of whatever it is. He's saying, listen, here's the ones who can come in my presence. Walk righteously. Speak purely. And they're not filled with the love of money. What did Jesus say? You cannot serve two masters, right? You can serve God or money. But you can't serve them both. You will be either, one will master you or the other. Money's not bad, folks. Nothing wrong with money. Lord knows I kind of am fond of money. I wish I had more money. But money's not my master. Jesus Christ is my master. Money is how I pay the bills. That's okay, right? That's a good thing. Okay, then he goes on and says, Who gestures with his hand, refusing bribes. That word for gesture means that literally, if someone was trying to hand him a bribe, he would have a tremor, like an epileptic seizure, and his hands wouldn't be able to take the money. That's what it means. He who gestures at taking the bribe. He literally is overcome by tremors because he knows how wrong that is. He he couldn't even put it in his hands. He couldn't, remember, it's like, 
you remember Fonzie? Wasn't it Fonzie that had the drinking problem? He put water on his forehead. There was something. I don't even remember why I bring that up. The point is, he couldn't do this thing because something else was... Anyhow, you get the idea. He can't take the bribes. I just stopped. He can't take the bribe because his hands are shaking so much. And then he who stops his ears from hearing bloodshed. Listen, don't miss out on this. This is speaking about gossip, and this is how God sees it. Who can't stand listening to bloodshed. That's how God sees when we speak hurt about somebody else. He counts it as bloodshed. He says he'll stop his ears. He won't hear it. I am not going to hear this. This are the ones who can dwell in the presence of God, who stops his ears from the hearing of bloodshed. Literally, that hearing which will cause hurt to people. And then he shuts his eyes from seeing evil. You know, Kathy told me about this. It's one of the many times I didn't listen. But all growing up in my life, I've always been somewhat attracted to violence and somebody getting what they, they're just desserts. And I always liked watching that stuff. And I could turn on TV and watch guys get hacked up into pieces and it doesn't bother me at all. But what is it that he says here? He who will dwell in the presence of God shuts his eyes to evil. Period. Our kids, mine included, learn to shoot people in video games and see things that you and I only could imagine if we read a book. It wasn't right there in front of us. The world that they live in and the things that the evil things are at their fingertips, they're they're rampant. What's the point of all that? It's not that it. It's just that it it causes us to be desensitized to the value of life. Desensitized to evil. And now all of a sudden, well, that's not so evil. That's okay. I mean, I've made excuse for it myself. Well, yeah, that's just, it's just violent. That's okay. Yet over and over again, God's word says, shut your eyes to evil. Don't see bloodshed. Don't look at those things. Either our lives are lived out in service to God or they're not. Either we are willing to take what God's word says and obey it. And I can't get away from it myself because, you know, the Lord lays it out for me and over and over and over again. Eventually he'll hit me with a two by four. I'll get it sooner or later. But the point being, hey, that there are things in my life that are holding me back from experiencing a deeper relationship with God. And if that's true for me, it's true for you. I don't know what it is for you. But there are those things, little things that we think, what's the big deal? We've okayed it in our own mind. But they're not okay. Here he says he shuts his eye to evil. This one will dwell on high. And here's what he receives. Listen. His, he will dwell on high. His place of defense will be the fortress of the rocks. And bread will be given him and his water will be sure. What's God promised them? 
Fellowship, security, and provision. He will dwell on high in this mighty fortress, this mighty fortress where we'll have security and protection, and bread will be given him, his water will be sure. We have provision. Everything we need, we're going to find in God. Everything we need. Every single part that we think is missing is wrapped up in him. We may think it's in something else, but it's not. It's in God. It's all in God. It's all in him. And then, as he's talking about this place, describing a little bit about what heaven is like, then he goes on to talk about the presence of the king. Your eyes will see the king in his beauty. Now, I don't know about you, but that is the single greatest day on my horizon. I'm not going to have to wonder what Jesus looks like. I'm not going to have to wonder any of that. I will see him face to face. I will see the king in his beauty. In all that he is, in all of his majesty, we'll see the king. And they will see the land that is very far off. Your heart will meditate on terror. You'll say, where is the scribe? Where is he who weighs? Where is he who counts the towers? But you will not see a fierce people, a people of obscure speech beyond perception, or of a stammering tongue that you cannot understand. What's he saying? You're going to say, well, where's all these people? Where's all those who, who talked about our destruction? Where's all those who said that, you know, before I perish, Christianity will be wiped off the face of the earth? Where's all the people who said that? Where are they now? They're gone. And then this little promise to, to Israel. You will not see a fierce people, a people of obscure speech beyond perception, a stammering tongue that you cannot understand. You remember when we read 1 Corinthians chapter 14, we talked about the gift of tongues. It was said that it is a sign to the people of impending judgment. This is taken from Isaiah. That people that had a stammering tongue, that spoke in a language you didn't understand, was God's message to the people that you are in judgment. You have drifted from me. You see, when they were dry, they were supposed to call in the name of the Lord. When there was no rain, they were supposed to say, Lord, bring your rain. I've gotten off track. Lord, okay, I'm back where I need to be. Bring the rain. But they would headlong as fast as they could into destruction. And so people with stammering lips, speaking tongues they couldn't understand would be a sign of judgment. That occurred on the day of Pentecost. 120 disciples gathered together in an upper room for a prayer meeting, prayed, and the Spirit of God became a rushing wind that blew through that place. And they spoke in tongues. Each man heard them in their own language. But what was the message to Israel? Judgment is coming. It was less than 30 years when Titus Vespasian surrounded Jerusalem in the worst siege ever, And Jerusalem was utterly destroyed. The fulfillment of the ultimate judgment, Jesus told them would take place because of their rejection of him. Because you did not know the time of your visitation. Isn't that what Jesus said? They will not leave one rock upon another. Peter said, this 
that you see happening is what the prophet Joel spoke. Speaking of the day of Pentecost, this is what the prophet Joel spoke when he said, In the last days, the Spirit of God will be poured out. Your young men will dream dreams. They'll prophesy. They'll speak in tongues that you don't understand. For one, it's a message of life and the pouring out of the Spirit and the birthday of the church as God extends grace to the Gentile. That there's no longer two different types of people, Jew and Gentile, but we're all made one in Christ Jesus. To the other, impending judgment. The judgment is coming. Here he's saying, you're going to say, hey, where are the people with the stammering lips? The Bible tells in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 that one day tongues will cease. I promise you, when I see Jesus face to face, I don't need it anymore. I won't speak another word. Until that time, anytime the Lord places it on my heart, I will pray in tongues, sing in tongues, call upon his name, whatever it takes. Because that is something that God has gifted the church with. That's in the church today. It's in the church. And when utilized according to God's word, it's perfect. It's great. It's right. So this is what that sign is to the nation of Israel. One day, you're not going to see it anymore. There will be a restoration of the divine favor that they had with God. And that is the purpose of the tribulation. Look upon Zion, the city of our appointed feast. You remember, if you've been with us on Wednesday night, what does appointed feast literally mean? They're appointed times. Appointed times. What are their appointed times? Each one of the feasts point to something that God is doing, a work that God is accomplishing for the nation. And it begins at the beginning, the Passover. And we studied, when we studied Leviticus, what did it say on a Passover? What was the fulfillment of Passover? Jesus, when did he die? On a Passover. 14th of Nisan. Jesus died. In the Feast of Unleavened Bread, that seven-day feast, where they would hide the afikomen, they would take this piece of bread, this, this pouch with three loaves of matzah, they would take the middle loaf out and break it, Put it in a linen, uh, a linen cloth, wrap it in linen cloth, and hide it. And if you ask them why they do it, they say, well, I don't know. And they have all these, well, it's, it, that, that middle piece speaks of the, the prophets, the priests, the Levites. And well, then why are the priests broken in half? Well, we don't know. What does it really symbolize? Father, Son, Holy Spirit. The Son was broken, buried, and rose again. That's the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Christ was in the ground for the Feast of Unleavened Bread. On the Feast of First Fruits, three days after Passover. Does that remind us of anything? Jesus Christ did what in three days? rose again and became the first fruits. Scripture tells us he became the first fruits of the dead. Jesus. You go through each and every one of the feasts. You know what happened 50 days after that? 
You know what feast? The next feast? The fourth feast? Pentecost. We were just talking about that. Pentecost. They say Pentecost was the birthday of the law. The celebration of the giving of the law. It was the only day when they would eat leavened bread. They would bring two leavened loaves. Hmm. Why? Leaven is always a picture of evil. Why did they bring two leavened loaves? Why? Why? Here I am. Okay. I have no idea. Where was I? Anybody remember? Okay, so the two loaves. Speaking of... (laughs) It's a good thing I have a wife. Speaking of the Jews and Gentiles being brought together in one. They thought it spoke of the two tablets of the law. You mean the law is evil? It has leaven in it? The Bible says the law is perfect. So that doesn't work, right? That doesn't work. What happened the day the law was given? The children of Israel were dancing around a gold calf. 3,000 people died. What happened on the day of Pentecost? The Holy Spirit was poured out. The church was born. And how many people were saved? 3,000. Coincidence? I don't think so. As we go looking through the appointed times, those four we see fulfilled. There's three we're still waiting on. One of them, by the way, is called the Feast of Trumpets. I wonder what that has to do with. And then we have the Day of Atonement. And what's the last one, babe? Well, get the tape. That's the Day of Atonement. Okay, so anyway, it's on a Leviticus tape. Check it out. I'll look back in Leviticus in a minute. But in, I'm sorry? Say it again. The Feast of Tabernacles. Thank you. You win. You win. The Feast of Tabernacles. That's right. When we leave the earthly dwellings and we go into temporary dwellings. And so we see those three feasts. We're looking for yet future events taking place. Um, but what did, what did the scripture say? These are your appointed feasts, the appointed times. Your eyes will see Jerusalem, a quiet home. Is that the way Jerusalem is now? If you walk into the shepherd's gate and listen... My plan is, here, here's, I give you a little current events. My plan is in November to take a tour in Israel, uh, a pastor's uh, tour, and what they'll do, whatever the cost of that tour is, they'll reimburse when we book our own trip. So within 18 months of November, we will book a church trip to Israel. And we will go and we'll walk in the shepherd's gate in Jerusalem and you will look up and see bullet holes. They're not current. Well, as far as I know, they're not current. Why? Because the city of Jerusalem, the city of peace, has seen more war than anything else, any place else on the planet. But in that day when Jesus rules as king, your eyes will see Jerusalem as a quiet home. Peace, finally. 
a tabernacle that will not be taken down. Not one of its stakes will ever be removed, nor will any of its cords be broken. You know that Jerusalem is still built in the same place that Jerusalem was always built on. One civilization on top of another, on top of another. In fact, you go into the rabbinical tunnels when we go to Israel. We'll go into the rabbinical tunnels underneath the Temple Mount. And you will see some incredible things under there from earlier civilizations of Israel. Early, dating back to earlier times in the time of Christ. Why? Because every time it was wiped out, they built on top. And wiped it out, they built on top. Wiped it out, built on top. It's getting taller and taller. When Jesus comes, it's, we're never going to see those stakes ever removed. But there the majestic Lord will be for us. In the Hebrew, he's, he's saying, the majestic Lord will be our sovereign. He'll be for us. He, he'll be our everything, everything we're about. A place of broad rivers and streams in which no galley with oars will sail, nor majestic ships will pass by. For the Lord is our judge. The Lord is our lawgiver. The Lord is our king. How many times did it say that? Three times. Funny how that happens so often, huh? The Lord is our judge. That speaks of His gift in leadership. The Lord is our lawgiver. That speaks of the day-to-day legislation of living. And the Lord is our king. Speaks of His eternal rightful place as our king. He's our king. He will save us. Your tackle is loosed. They could not strengthen their mass. They could not spread the sail. They pray... Then the prey of great plunder is divided. The lame take the prey, and the inhabitant will not say, I am sick. Now he's talking about those who live in Zion, in this perfect place. What did he say? The inhabitant will, will not say, I'm sick. There'll be no sickness. What else did he say? The people who dwell in it will be forgiven their iniquity. All the people that enter into that millennial reign of Christ, they're going to experience perfect reign, perfect peace, no sickness, the curse is lifted, and they'll be forgiven their iniquity. Yet, some will still choose to rebel against him. But that's another story. We'll save it for another time. Then we're going to just share... <clears throat> Sometimes you just got to say, Stop! There's so much good stuff in the next two chapters. So we'll have to get together next time. But as we come to this point, as we come to this point on Sunday nights, I didn't get anywhere close to three chapters tonight. I'm sorry. As we come to this point, the the final 20 minutes or so, we want to really focus Sunday nights on prayer. We've really been feeling like God is really impressed on my heart that God wants to bring a revival, that the Lord wants to change things. He, he wants us to affect our community. He wants us to be able to, to touch people's lives. But you and I need to know that never comes apart from God doing that work in us first. Judgment begins in the house of God. And God does that work. And when I... When I uh, recently, when I went to the pastor study, someone was sharing on some of the great revivals, 
Do you know that those people sometimes prayed 19 years for that revival to come? Took that long for, for God's people to be prepared, to be ready, to be in place. But when it came, man, you could not stop the floodgate as God just poured out His Spirit in a mighty way. So it's our heart tonight, as we just close in the last 20 minutes, we're going to have an opportunity for a time of prayer. Uh, we are asking to try to direct our prayer toward that goal, whatever the Lord places on your heart. Uh, we want to invite you to go ahead and pray. If God gives you a scripture and you feel like the Lord wants you to, to, to share a verse, I invite you to, to share that verse. And as we do this, keep in mind that we're just, just trying to share together. We want to give opportunity to, for everyone to be able to pray, for everyone to be able to share. So please... The sermon's already over, so if you get a verse, share a verse. If you get a, if you want to pray, pray, but let's try to keep it around three or four minutes so other people can be a part of it as well. And let's just allow this opportunity for the Spirit to move. And, uh, and then, you know, when it's over, then we'll stop. Until then, <laughs> we'll keep going. All right, so uh, we can go ahead and dim the lights and we'll go ahead and pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God, we thank you that we can just come before you, Father, and just just seek that blessing of your Spirit poured out upon your people. Lord God, we thank you for an opportunity just to look in the pages of Isaiah and see, God, as you prepare your people for deliverance. God, I pray that you would help us, give us the heart that we need. For me personally, Lord, you know the the weights and the sin that so easily ensnare and hold me back. So do surgery. Cut it out. Pull it away. Use the, use the hyssop and the blood and make me clean. Prepare us, Lord God, for the work that you have for us as a body, as a church. Lord God, we want to we be able, ready, to, to reach out, ready to share, ready to, to see that work that you're going to do. Lord, we just pray, God, that you would begin that work in us. That your word would accomplish its perfect work within us. As we just seek that touch from you, Lord, we lift this time to you.